John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, bring some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, in parentheses, but the servants who drew the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine and when the guests have well drunk, then that which is inferior, but you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now after this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. If we go back to um, the very first one, it says the third day. So if you look, just turn the page back, what we had going on um, with John the Baptist, you'll notice between verse 34 and 35, it says, again, the next day. So we have um, uh, verse 29 the next day, and 34 and 35, I believe, being the, the, the second. So we begin now on the third day. So John starts right from the beginning. Uh, we'll be talking this morning. Um, we're going to look at the first of the seven miracles in John's gospel. Remember, John is different. He writes around seven miracles and seven I am statements. What we're looking at this morning is the very first of the seven miracles. And then I'm going to do something rather unique and take you through um, a traditional Jewish wedding and how it would have been conducted over a seven-year period of time. You have to admit, if it was just a one-day wedding, there shouldn't be really a big deal of running out of wine. But if this was an event that went on for seven days, that probably could have happened on a regular um, basis. Um, as we look a little background information on this. The wedding, a Jewish wedding, would have lasted seven days. Uh, that's going to become uh, an important number, as we just read about the tribulation being a seven-year period of time, and the church's um, involvement, or I should say lack of involvement, because we're not here during that time. Uh, during this time, the bride and groom would not have been seen. Uh, Family and friends would celebrate the marriage 
And after seven days, and only after seven days, would the bride and the groom actually come out, and then they would have the wedding supper, or the wedding feast. Uh, This is really a type of the model of the marriage supper of the Lamb that you've heard about. It comes from Jewish tradition. After the rapture, we're taken to be with our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. After the seven-year tribulation period, we return. Um, Jude 14 tells us, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. We return as the bride of Christ. So if we look at um, the first couple of verses here, it was on the third day, a wedding of Cana, and we read at the end there that they went, uh, verse 12, they went down to Capernaum. Again, unless you've been in the land, you really don't quite get this, but um, um, the Sea of Galilee is uh, very, very low, and uh, Cana it would be actually up on a hill, and so everything's downhill. So when we read here, they, they went down to Capernaum, literally. They, it was a downhill journey that they went. And it says, now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now remember, this is, this is a seven-day ordeal that when I actually get into telling the story of a traditional um, Jewish wedding, we're sort of laying the foundation here, and you'll see um, just how uh, this was actually played out. It says the wine ran out. So in the scriptures, uh, wine is in the Bible as a symbol of joy. And um, Mary brought it to the Lord's attention that um, the wine had run out. For taking notes, Psalm 104, verse 15, and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens a man's heart. But here in verse four, Jesus is going to reply to Mary. And she is asking the Lord to do this. He knows what he wants, what she wants. And, but the Lord almost is stern in his rebuttal to Mary. And he says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Well, what was Mary's concern? Was it really an issue over the wine? Or... Why don't you turn over to John chapter eight and um, draw your attention to verse 41. Mary's reason for wanting the wine is so now her family and friends would finally understand. Um, Mary grew up with a reputation. I mean, if you lived in Nazareth, and you were betrothed. Remember, uh, Joseph was ready to put her away. Why? Well, they were under a contract. This was already uh, a sealed marriage. And now she's pregnant. Okay, mom and dads, say your uh, 16-year-old girl comes home 
and she's pregnant. How did that happen? Well, the Holy Spirit came down from heaven and um, that's how I became pregnant. What do you do with that? Well, Joseph didn't even buy it. And so she has been living with this stigma her entire life. Nobody believed that story. And now we have an opportunity. How? Well, all the Lord had to do is make that water into wine. And everybody would know that her story is true. Not only did family and friends uh, not believe the story, but if you're in John chapter 8, verse 41, this is a very debated, heated discussion that escalates from the first verse. And they're, they're throwing one-liners back at each other. Uh, verse 40 says, but you seek, the Lord said, but you, you guys are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, Abraham did not do this. And he says, you do the deeds of your father. Then they said to them, well, we weren't born out of fornication. So the word was out, even to the religious leaders. Uh, we have one father, God. So, you know, this, this is just a, a slam on Mary. And Mary here has an opportunity. So when the Lord says, let's go back to John 2, your concern, don't you think this was on in the back of her head all the time? Wherever she went, don't you think people would look and talk and whisper? And she lived with that her whole life. Ah, an opportunity. Opportunity, so I'll show these guys, that's her concern. I'll show them who he really is. In, um, we're gonna find the number seven coming up here quite a bit. For seven times, Jesus is gonna say in John's gospel, my hour has not yet come. In other words, he's saying to Mary, Mary, you'll be vindicated. I'll make your name right, but not now. My hour has not yet come. And uh, I'll be taking you to that, that verse in just a little bit here. Matter of fact, let's do it right now. Let's go to John chapter 17. Remember, seven times Jesus is going to say, my hour has not yet come. John 17, verse one, Jesus spoke these words, lifting his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. So the first time it said, my hour has not come, Mary, but it's coming. You'll be cleared, but not now. So then, let's go back to John 2, uh, verse 5 through 9. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. What I'd like to point out here are these are the last recorded words of Mary. And I think they're great recorded words. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. And these are the last recorded words of Mary in the scriptures. The last thing she said, do it. Now there were six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews concerning 20 or 30 gallons apiece. I mean, that's a lot of wine. And again, if this was just a one day event, this doesn't make sense, but it's not. 
It's a seven-day event. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the masters of the, of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, and it's interesting to me here what's in parentheses, but the servants who drew the water, when they put that water in there, it was water. And when they served it <laughs> to the father of the, of the, uh, the wedding party, um, uh, it wasn't water any longer. Nobody knew except those who were um, the servants. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. I just want to get a little sidetracked here. And it seems the closer we get to the coming of the Lord, we see the world becoming more worldly. We see Christians having less of a desire to serve and be involved and just help. Let me just, you might feel like you're not qualified or whatever. The Lord isn't interested in your ability, okay? Can I get an amen from that? But he is concerned about your availability. In other words, with Elijah, who shall I send? Who will go for me? Elijah raised his hand and says, here I am. Elijah, Isaiah. (laughs) Here I am, send me. And when we say things like, you know, we could really use help Um, in the children's ministry. You know, we could really use help with the yard crew. We we could really use some help with um, the snow crew in the wintertime. You know, we're getting farther and farther away from what Jesus said, if you want to be great, then you have to be a servant of all. And do it with a heart that says, when it's all said and done, Lord, I'm nothing more than an unprofitable servant. And um, we don't do it for any other reason except that um, there was a job that needed to be done and our attitude should be, let me do it. As it gets into the financial area of things, we're told that if we're, as a Christian, if I look at Mel and Linda and all of a sudden they run out of gas on their motorcycle and I see them parked by the side of the road, I don't say, Be warm and filled. God bless you. I'll pray for you guys today. (laughs) No. You you pull over and you help. help. I'm going to lose some treasure right now, darn it. Because that reminds me of something that happened to me this week. It's not my notes, but I'm coming to church and here's a woman in her late 60s and some young guy and he's actually pushing the car. And it was right off, right off of Newberry, and they, they lived three blocks away. And I know I have one of those cords that I can pull people out of a ditch um, with a four-wheel drive truck, and I can hook that baby up, and I can have them home in no time. So I pulled over and um, said, you need a hand? And he said, um, uh, we'll make it. And I said, I'm watching you guys, and you're not making it. <laughs> And I said, this, I do this all the time in the wintertime. I got a special cord that is uh, very capable of moving this car where, wherever it needs to go. The only thing I ask is that when you take it and hook it up underneath, that you do that 
in case I pull your your front suspension off (laughs) in the process. He says, deal. So um, hooked it up. They were home in two minutes. The guy's reaching in his his wallet. He's going to give me some money. I said, I want my money. I says, but I do want something. He says, well, what do you want? Well, I want you to take these two DVDs. I'm going to give one to you and one to you. It's called God of Wonders. If you want to do something for me, do you want to do something for me? And they said, oh, yeah, we want to do something for you. Then you go home and promise me you'll watch this. Thank you. We'll do it. (laughs) So now I lost my treasure for that one, but... (laughs) The point is, if, we, if it's within our power to do it, we're to do it. Another good place for an amen. No matter how big or how small the class, if somebody comes up during announcement and says, you know, we could really use help here or here, turn with me to the book of Colossians. And we always, we always got our reasons why we don't know. If, if you only knew how busy I was, otherwise I would if I wasn't so busy, then it's a matter of priorities. Where are your priorities? In the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 23, let's talk a little bit about these servants. Jesus said, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you must learn. It's a learning process. You must learn to be servants of all. What can we learn from these servants here? Well, Jesus, in verse 7, said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they did. They didn't argue, and servants simply have to be obedient. In Colossians 3, um, verse 22, servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, uh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart and fearing God. Now notice verse 23. And whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Don't expect to get anything from it. Uh, Your reward will be in heaven. And um, so the enthusiasm that they had, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of your inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. So this whole idea of being a servant, they were enthusiastic. It says they filled it to the brim, not halfway, not three-fourths, but right up to the brim. So servants obey, servants do it heartily as unto the Lord, not unto men. Romans 12, if you're taking notes, verse 11 says, not lagging in diligence, not lagging in diligence, but fervent in spirit. And just having this attitude, all the, uh, we're to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, because it's a reasonable thing to do. What do you mean reasonable? Well, he only died for you, took away your sins, and gave you his righteousness. If that doesn't create an attitude of gratitude, I'll quote Dylan this morning, what the heck. He wrote a song, what can I do for you? After all you've done for me, what can I do for you? And um, so it's just sort of waiting in the wings for that opportunity um, Um, actually to come up. Now, the results of this, go back to you, John. The results of the servants doing what the Lord asked them to do, the father 
um, verse 10 said, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine and when the guests have well drunk, I have to stop and make something very, very clear here. The Bible has a lot to say about wine. It can be um, something that makes the heart glad. And what is being said here is uh, crazy if anybody's thinking that well drunk means that they were drunk. Is everybody with me on that one? The Bible clearly condemns drunkenness. Good place for an amen. But they were, it's also here used for joy and celebration. And in just a little bit, it was actually toasted at a typical Passover meal. There's four cups of wine that go around. But don't ever read this verse and thinking, yeah, they were there just getting loaded. The Bible clearly condemns that as sin. Then that which is inferior, in other words, he's saying, usually they bring the cheap stuff out first, and um, then, but you've kept the good wine until now. Now, what are the results of this um, um, miracle? This was the first miracle. This beginning, so this is number one, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And he manifested his glory. Um, and his disciples believed in him. So the disciples uh, were able to figure it out. They knew, eventually. And then we read uh, in verse 12, after this he went down to Capernaum, again it's downhill, uh, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. I'm going to camp on this a little bit. We already talked a little bit about Mary's last words. And have you um, turn to me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Drawing your attention to verses 55 and 56. This is where Jesus is rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. Let's pick it up in 54. And when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, and they names the brothers, James, Jose, Simon, Judas, and his sisters, plural. I'm counting one, two, three, four brothers, and at least two sisters, six altogether. And where did this man get all these things? Um, I need to point out whenever I... Um, expose false doctrine that I do it not to make anybody feel uncomfortable but if I don't do it and it's actually false doctrine by not exposing it you're not doing the loving thing and this is one of the cases where this needs to be exposed I'm quoting from the Catholic Catechism page 55 Number 13, and this is part of Roman Catholicism's dogma. Did, the question is, did Mary remain always a virgin? 
The answer, yes. It is a dogma of Catholic faith taught firmly from early centuries that Mary remained a virgin throughout her entire life. This teaching is implicit in scripture. Oh, really? And it became explicit and clear in the faith consciousness of the church in early centuries. Notice they're not gonna quote any scriptures here. They're just gonna allude that that was a custom. The church had steadfastly believed and taught that Mary remained true to God in the intense fervor of her, her virgin virginal love. By the miracle of the virginal conception, he had enabled her to be both virgin and mother. The constant use in the church of the title virgin for Mary gave testimony to uh, the firm faith that she guarded this gift always. By the fourth century, every virgin became a popular title for Mary. This uh, faith firmly remained in the church. Even now, the Second Vatican Council also proclaimed her perpetually a virgin, or forever. And all you have to do is go to Matthew chapter 13. All you have to do is go to John chapter two, his brothers and his disciples. Well, I've heard the argument, well, when it said brothers, he was meaning um, the disciples. No, two different words there, read it carefully. And if you have any doubt about that uh, further than that, then just go to Matthew 13, gives them by name. So let's put that to rest. And now, let's get into the romantic part of our study, and I have you turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Oh, we almost had Zola Levitt here at one time. How many of you guys remember Zola Levitt? Just raise your hand. He's a a Christian, but he was Jewish, so he's a Messianic believer. And um, uh, he died in 2006, I think, is what we were talking about in the back room. But um, I was going to skim the book and uh, and just share it with you, but it's so well written, and it's so well done. I'm not going to read the entire thing, but he, being Jewish, goes on to explain and then connect the dots between a Jewish wedding and how it's a picture of the bride of Christ and uh, this would have been a very, very traditional uh, wedding that would have happened in Israel. So I want to give credit where credit is due. This is his booklet. Uh, we can get them for you if we don't have them in our bookstore now because I think there's people who are going to want one. So I'm quoting Zola, and he's just recounting history. His perspective is better than mine because he's Jewish. We should appreciate that the Jews had no dating or courtship, as we now think of those things. Marriage to them was a practical legal matter established by contract, carried through by exacting procedures. These customs exist in a form today in the Jewish wedding ceremony, and in Jesus' time, they were the most fascinating and complex. When the young men of Israel in Jesus' time saw the girl he wanted, or in parentheses, or the girl his father said he wanted, 
<laughs> he would approach her with a marriage contract. He would come to her house with a covenant, a true legal agreement, giving the terms by which he would propose marriage. The most important consideration in the contract was the price the bridegroom would be willing to pay to marry this particular bride. The bride's price is still utilized today in parts of the Mediterranean and African worlds, and while it seems most archaic to us now, it had some useful purposes. First of all, if the bridegroom was willing to sacrifice hard cash for his bride, he was showing his love in a more tangible way. Secondly, it was a favor to his future father-in-law. He must, we must recall that in those days of farming and hard labor, it was sometimes a liability to raise a daughter. A family with sons would probably uh, prosper more because of the built-in workforce, but a family with daughters would expect to consolidate their losses when the girls were mature enough to attract bridegrooms. And so, the father of the bride was more or less paid off for his earlier expenses and for his patience and skill in raising a girl to be a good marriage material. The bridegroom would present himself to the bride with this agreement, offering to pay a suitable price for her, and she and her father would consider his contract. If the terms were suitable, the bride and groom would drink a cup of wine together, and this would seal the bargain. This cup was most significant. It signifies the bridegroom was willing, uh, willingness to sacrifice in order to have this bride. It was offered as a toast to the bride, and of course it showed the bride's willingness to enter into this marriage. Then the groom would pay the price. It should be said that the price was not no modest token, but was set so that the new bride would be a costly item. That was the idea. The young man had no delusions that he was getting something for nothing. He would pay dearly to marry the gal of his choice. When the matter was settled, the groom would depart. He would make a little speech to his bride saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, at this point, the light should begin to come on, okay? And you, and he would return to his father's house. Back at his father's house, he would build her a bridal chamber a little mansion in which they would have their future honeymoon. We would appreciate that this was a complex undertaking for the bridegroom. He would actually build a separate building on his father's property or decorate a room in his father's home. The bridal chamber had to be beautiful. One doesn't honeymoon just anywhere and had to be stocked with provisions since the bride and groom we're going to remain inside for seven days. Now, in light of the Psalm 2 reading this morning, start to connect the dots there. This construction project would take the better part of a year ordinarily, and the father of the groom would be the judge of when it was finished. We can see the logic here. Obviously, if we're up to a young man, he would throw up some kind of modest structure and go get the girl. <laughs> But the father of the groom, who had been through this previously, was less excited, and he would be the final judge on when the chamber was ready and when the young man could go claim his bride. Now, the bride, for her part, was 
obliged to do a lot of waiting. She would take the time to gather her um, tourage and be ready when her bridegroom came. Custom provided that she had to have an oil lamp ready in case he came late at night in the darkness because she had to be ready to travel at a moment's notice. Now, during the long period of waiting, she was referred to as consecrated, set apart, bought with a price. She was truly a lady in waiting, but there was no doubt that her groom would return. Sometimes a young man would depart for a very long time, indeed, but of course he had paid a high price for his bride. Even though there were other young women available, he would surely return to the one with whom he had made the covenant. The bride, well, she would wear her veil whenever she stepped outside of her house so that the other young men would realize she's taken, she's spoken for, and they would not try to approach her with another contract. Today, the bride of Christ wears a veil. Those not understanding of the covenant tried to make other contracts with us that would violate the one we have with our bridegroom. We are to resist those other offers and wait only for the one who paid for us. As the year went on, the bride would assemble her sisters and bridemaids and whoever would go with her to the wedding when the bridegroom came and they would each have their oil lamps ready. They would wait at her house every night on the chance that the groom would come along with the groomsmen and sweep them all away to a joyous and sudden wedding ceremony. Meanwhile, the bridegroom would be building, decorating uh, with all that he had. His father would inspect the chamber from time to time to see if it was ready. Um, If we came along the road at this point and saw the young man working on the bridal chamber, we might say, When's the big day? But the bridegroom would answer, only my father knows that. Again, more light bulbs should be going off. Finally, the chamber would be ready and the bridegroom would assemble his young friends to accompany him on the exciting trip to claim his bride. The big moment had arrived and the bridegroom was more than ready. Uh, We can be sure. He and his young men would set out in the night making every attempt to completely surprise the bride. And that's the romantic part. I like this part here. All the Jewish brides were stolen. The Jews had a special understanding of a woman's heart. What a thrill for her to be abducted and carried off in the night, not by a stranger, but by one who loved her so much that he had paid a high price for her. Over at the bride's house, Things had better be ready. To be sure, the bride would be surprised since the groom would try to come at midnight while she was sleeping. But the oil lamps were ready. And the bride had her veil. And while she might be sleeping in her wedding dress, she was definitely surprised. It's a wonder she would sleep at all uh, that, that year, that first year anyway. Now, there were rules to be observed in consideration of a woman's feelings. The groom couldn't just rush in uh, on her. After all, she might have rollers in her hair. Zola's got a sense of humor. Actually, at the 
as the excited party of the young men would get closer to her house, they were obligated to give her a warning. Someone in the wedding party had to shout out. Again, more lights should be going off. When the bride heard that sound, she knew her young man would be there momentarily. She had only time to light her lamp, grab her honeymoon clothing, and go. Her sisters and bridesmaids who wanted to attend also had to have their lamps trimmed and ready, of course. No one would try to walk through ancient Israel with its rocky terrain in the dark of night without carrying a lamp. And so the groom and his men would charge in, grab the girls, and make off with them. The father of the bride and her brothers would simply look the other way. Perhaps maybe one quick check to see that it was the right guy with the contract. And the wedding party would take off. People in the village might be awakened from their sleep by the happy voices of the young people carrying the oil lamps through the street, and that's how they knew a wedding was going on. Today, we hear car horns. (laughs) Back then, they saw the lamps late at night. Those looking on would not know who the bride was because she was still wearing a veil, of course. But she would be returning through these same streets a week later with her groom, and then her veil would be taken off. At the return of the bride and her bridegroom, all the people would know just who got married, and they would realize the total significance of this wedding. When the wedding party reached the house of the groom's father, the bride and the groom would go into their chamber and shut the door. No one else could enter. The groom's father, meanwhile, would have assembled the wedding guest, his friends, and they would be ready to celebrate the new marriage. Since the wedding was actually going to take seven days until the appearance of the bride and groom out of the chamber, it was hard to plan for. Occasionally, the host would run out of wine, as we can imagine. The Lord himself graced the wedding at Cana with his presence and replenished the wine for the celebrants, as told in John 2, our chapter that we're studying this morning. But the celebration wouldn't start right away. First, the marriage actually had to be consummated. The Jews were a most law-abiding people, and the law provided that the bride and the groom become one before their marriage was recognized. Thus, the friend of the bridegroom, the individual we might refer to as the best man, he'd stand by the door of the bridal chamber waiting to hear the bridegroom's voice. When the marriage was consummated, the bridegroom would tell his friends through the door and the friend would go out to the wedding guest and announce the good news. The celebration would then begin and it would continue for an entire week. At the end of the week, the bride and groom would make their long-awaited appearance to the cheers of the crowd. There would be a joyous meal, a marriage supper, which we might refer to as the wedding reception to honor the new couple. At this point, the bride bride would have discarded her veil since she was now a married woman, and all would see exactly who it was the bridegroom had chosen. The new couple and the guests would enjoy a magnificent feast to conclude the entire matrimonial week. 
After the marriage supper, the bride and groom would depart, not remaining any longer at the house of the groom's father. They would go instead to their own house, which had been prepared by the bridegroom. The bride of Christ will spend seven years in heaven at the home of the groom's father, and then he shall return and our bridegroom to occupy the kingdom um, that he has prepared for us. No man knows the day or the hour. My father only. Matthew chapter 24. He didn't have it in there, but I'm going to throw it in. One more paragraph. As the bride and groom would travel back through the village, it would become appreciated by all onlookers just who the couple was and where their permanent home would be. And that was a complete Jewish wedding in Jesus' time, in all of its glory. Readers of the gospel can easily see the beautiful analogies between the complex procedure and the manner in which the Lord himself called out his chosen bride. Perhaps there's no happier Bible study than this one. There's more that gets into a detailed account of every time I said, well, the light should come on here, the rest of the book goes in and takes you to those scriptures. Now, at this time, turn to John chapter 14, which I've asked you to do so earlier, and we'll look at some of, just two of the obvious. I'm gonna take you here and then to Matthew 25. The Lord knows he's going away. John the Baptist called himself a friend of the bridegroom, but not the bride. We read in men's prayer yesterday that, um, I think it was yesterday, that the greatest man who ever lived was John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Well, what does that mean? Well, because you're the bride and we're married to the bridegroom, John just said, I'm just a friend. And so we're gonna be reunited someday with all, all the Old Testament saints that are there. I mean, you could sit down next to Daniel and you could say, I hope you could say, hi, Daniel, I've read your book. And by reading your book, I realized, Daniel 9, verse 1, that you read Jeremiah's book. So you guys better be reading these books because you're gonna have to have something to talk about over supper. But there's different places. And that's why the bridegroom is, uh, has a more prominent place than even the Old Testament prophets. John 14, let not your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Turn over to Matthew chapter 25. The parable of the ten virgins, 1 through 13. The kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. This parable is taken right from a Jewish wedding. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. 
But while the bridegroom was delayed and they slumbered and slept, remember they like to surprise him? And at midnight a cry was heard, behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Zola said he couldn't just jump in on her because she might have rollers in her hair, remember? Fair warning. Here, actually what could have been proclaimed is we're a block away. Behold, the bridegroom, he's coming. Go out to meet him. And then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. Now I have to stop. And Zola gets into quite a bit of detail about what I'm gonna say in this part of his book. He says, clearly what we have, oil is always emblematic of the Holy Spirit. And um, when Samuel anointed David with oil, was the idea that he has an anointing. And it's the Holy Spirit that's there. So when it said that some of them had oil and some of them ran out or whatever or weren't ready and weren't waiting, um, Zola, um, I just agree with Zola and I've always taught this and always believed this, that the oil is a picture of a born again Christian. The other ones are still virgins. But how many people fill our mega churches today who don't know Jesus Christ. They're not born again. And that's what I believe is being stated here. I mean, if you were here for the prophecy conference, one of the key things that was weaved together is the social gospel that's replacing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The idea of talking about sin and repentance and the necessity, you must be born again. And if you're not born again, then the spirit or the oil is not in you. And we're the servants that are supposed to be dispersing this this likeness of wine being a type of oil to actually, um, the Lord said you'll receive the spirit and when he comes you'll be like a river of water that just gushes over into the lives of other people. We're to be dispensers. Good place for an amen. You have to have the anointing and the baptism of the Holy Spirit in order for that to happen. The Lord says, guys, don't leave Jerusalem. Don't do nothing until you've received the promise, which was what? The infilling of the Holy Spirit. And when you have that, then and only then, you're gonna be witnesses for me in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. I left off in verse six, Verse seven, verse eight says, and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. Well, that's something that, that um, can't be done. Only the Lord himself can get that. If you're taking notes, write down Luke chapter 11 where the Lord tells the story about how to receive the Holy Spirit. It's as simple as asking for it, but that's the notes. But the wise answered, no, lest there should be not enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and and buy for yourselves. While they went to buy, well, what's going on while they're going on to buy? Well, the bridegroom is already coming down the street. They came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he said, assuredly I say to you, I do not know you. Christian by name, but no relationship with Jesus Christ. Watch therefore, 
for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Only the Father knows. And when he says, son, you can go get your bride now, um, that's when that event, the rapture of the church, takes place. I'll close with, I found it interesting as I was reading my wisdom for today, I thought I'd read two days in a row. And uh, when I read uh, tomorrow, living in expectancy, he's quoting, Chuck is quoting 1 Corinthians 7, verse 29. He says, but this I say, brethren, the time is short. Chuck says, I'm convinced that God intended for every generation to believe Jesus is coming in their time. Why? Because he wants us to live in the expectancy of his return. When we believe his coming is imminent, we feel an urgency to bring the gospel to the world. The realization that time is short motivates us to fulfill the commission Jesus left us. Keep your every touch with the world as light as possible. Good place for it, amen? As light as possible. The awareness of his imminent return also gives us the right perspective concerning worldly things. When you know that the curtain on this life could close at any moment, and the curtain to eternity could lift in the blink of an eye, it helps you to keep a light touch on worldly things. You are not as apt to put down roots here. You are not as likely to become materialistic. Anticipating the return of Jesus has a purifying effect on our individual lives and on the church as a whole. When he comes, we don't want to be engaged in an activity that is contrary to his wishes. We want to be busy building up the kingdom, busy using what he's given us for his glory. We don't want to waste our time indulging in sorrow or in pleasure. We don't want to waste our time amassing possessions. Time is short, and the world is passing away. Give yourself, your time, your energies, and your resources to things that are eternal. Live for the kingdom of God and live forever. Good place for an amen? Good place to pray. Let's stand and we'll do that. Lord, we thank you for this unique study this morning. We know you love us, but all too often, Lord, we don't put it in the context of you being our groom that we are waiting for. Lord, help us... um, allow ourselves to be available, uh, just to be used into whatever capacity. And as you said in the parable of the 10 virgins, watch therefore. And just as in a Jewish wedding, that gal was ready on a moment's notice, waiting for the one who had already paid the price. And Lord, we know that you paid the price for us with your own shed blood. And you promise that if you go, you're gonna come again, that where you are, we're gonna be with you. Thank you for your word this morning. We commit this day to you. We commit this week to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what's going on while they're going on to buy? Well, the bridegroom is already coming down the street. They came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut.
Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Christian by name, but no relationship with Jesus Christ. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Only the Father knows. And when he says, son, you can go get your bride now, um, that's when that event, the rapture of the church, takes place. I'll close with, I found it interesting as I was reading my wisdom for today, I thought I'd read two days in a row. And uh, when I read uh, tomorrow, living in expectancy, he's quoting, Chuck is quoting 1 Corinthians 7, verse 29. He says, but this I say, brethren, the time is short. Chuck says, I'm convinced that God intended for every generation to believe Jesus is coming in their time. Why? Because he wants us to live in the expectancy of his return. When we believe his coming is imminent, we feel an urgency to bring the gospel to the world. The realization that time is short motivates us to fulfill the commission Jesus left us. Keep your every touch with the world as light as possible. Good place for it, amen? As light as possible. The awareness of his imminent return also gives us the right perspective concerning worldly things. When you know that the curtain on this life could close at any moment, and the curtain to eternity could lift in the blink of an eye, it helps you to keep a light touch on worldly things. You are not as apt to put down roots here. You are not as likely to become materialistic. Anticipating the return of Jesus has a purifying effect on our individual lives and on the church as a whole. When he comes, we don't to be engaged in an activity that is contrary to his wishes. We want to be busy building up the kingdom, busy using what he's given us for his glory. We don't want to waste our time indulging in sorrow or in pleasure. We don't want to waste our time amassing possessions. Time is short, and the world is passing away. Give yourself, your time, your energies, and your resources to things that are eternal. Live for the kingdom of God and live forever. Good place for an amen? Good place to pray. Let's stand and we'll do that. Lord, we thank you for this unique study this morning. We know you love us, but all too often, Lord, we don't put it in the context of you being our groom that we are waiting for. Lord, help us... um, allow ourselves to be available, uh, just to be used into whatever capacity. And as you said in the parable of the ten virgins, watch therefore. And just as in a Jewish wedding, that gal was ready on a moment's notice, waiting for the one who had already paid the price, and Lord, we know that you paid the price for us with your own shed blood. And you promise that if you go, you're going to come again. That where you are, we're going to be with you. 
Thank you for your word this morning. We commit this day to you. We commit this week to you. In Jesus' name, amen.